All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, your day, that we get to come and fellowship together and worship in your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our study of your word, that we would always come humbly before your throne, humbly before scripture, and we would we would be willing to teach no matter what scripture says, to be taught no matter what scripture says. Please guide us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know whose birthday it is today? Greg Bonson's birthday today. I mean, how fitting. It's just, I have a reminder on my phone every year, and so I'm like, oh, this is, this is wonderful. All right, so we're into part two today of our defense of postmillennialism. And just to summarize last time, the way we're going to defend postmillennialism is we're going to focus on what? The kingdom. Yes, very good, the kingdom. And we're going to go through five questions. So the first question, did Christ's kingdom arrive at his first coming? And then based on that answer, we'll then say, will this kingdom survive Christ's death? And based on that answer, will this kingdom grow? And then how will this kingdom grow? And then lastly, what is the end result of this growth? So let's begin, let's begin our journey here in postmillennialism. Did Christ's kingdom arrive at his first coming? Well, let's see. Starting in Matthew 10, these 12 uh, Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's pretty standard. We kind of gloss over this, but the, the disciples are going to Israel because it was their promise, right, that they would get the kingdom. So Jesus says, go and present it to them. So they are to go out and do that. And notice it's not just the proclamation of the kingdom is here, but tangible things are happening, okay? Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give, right? Jesus is taking back command of the world. So when Adam fell, Right? Satan now has somewhat, uh, some dominion over the earth. I'm not sure exactly what it all entails, but mo mostly he is allowed to go, as you see in Job, from earth to heaven. He gets to bring accusations to God against people on earth. Like He has dominion that Adam gave up when, when Adam fell. Now, Jesus comes to restore that, right? He comes to put his kingdom on earth and to to crush Satan's head and to cast him, cast him out, which is going to take you know, a period of time to, to happen. And that, this is one of the reasons why Jesus goes into the wilderness right, to start his ministry. So there are many reasons why he went into the wilderness. Many I'm sure we don't even understand. But for sure, one of them is to declare war against Satan. He's going to battle Satan. He's confronting him head on. Right? This is mine not yours. Satan wants to give this to him, right? To say, Jesus, just bow down to me and I'll give you what I have. And Jesus says, no, I will take what you have. It'll be mine. Okay, and, that, and then so he goes out to, to declare war with Satan. And we see this play out throughout, throughout the Gospels. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom, so now we're going to Matthew 12, talking about you know, how is Jesus casting out these devils? Is it by what authority? Right? It's by his father's authority, not Satan's authority. 
And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? So is this kingdom of Satan or is it of Jesus? Okay, it can't, can't be both. So if he casts out demons, which are of Satan, then clearly this is not Satan's house anymore. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Tangible, okay? It's here. It cannot be here if Satan has not, is not being in the process of being supplanted, right? Is being, being kicked, kicked out. The kingdom of God is come. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And heal the sick. That are, now, now we're going to go to Luke, Luke 10 and show that it, this is consistent throughout the Gospels. Okay, this is fairly, fairly clear as you go through the Gospel accounts. Says, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say... Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. I love that image. <laughs> Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. So, it's fairly straightforward. Disciples are supposed to announce the kingdom to the Israelites. The Israelites are supposed to accept it. But they don't. This is a great judgment then on Israel. And, but they say, though, that the kingdom of God is here... But they reject it. So what happens then from there? God gives it to the Gentiles. But notice, though, here it says, be ye sure of this. This is not disputed. Like, be sure it has come. It's here. Accept. You've been waiting for this. Jesus is your king. He's bringing you the kingdom. Accept it. Be sure of this. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. There is no doubt. It is sure the kingdom of God is here. All right, then we move on to Matthew 21. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So now, what premillennials will do at this point as they'll say, see, the kingdom of God was going to come. It was going to come to Israel, but then they rejected it, so he took it back. And now he's waiting to come back someday in the future and give it back to Israel and then also his, his church. Okay, but that's, I would say that's a very unnatural reading of this text. Okay, Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. It's, it's bringing it to the, it's, it's here. He didn't say now it's gone. He says it's here. He offers it to the Israelites, they reject it, and then he says, and he goes on with parables to illustrate this, it's taken now from you. And then this is consistent with the veil, right, that's over the Israelites' eyes, which will be lifted. I think Romans 11 talks about that, with the veil that will be lifted from the, the Jews' eyes. This is all consistent with that, okay? They rejected the kingdom, now they're blinded, 
but they will be restored someday in, in the future. But that kingdom, though, didn't just leave. It's now given to the Gentiles. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. They understood what was going on. They understood the accusation Jesus was giving to them. So we should be able to understand it as well, right? If they took it to be this way, then that's how we should interpret it, right? That was the plain meaning of, of his words. I like I liken this to, in John 10, if you go to a Jehovah's Witness or someone of, that denies Christ is, is God, and you, I'm pretty sure it's, it's John 10, and he talks about, you know, um, you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand, right? I, I and my Father are one, so you can't be taken out. Like, you cannot. Once we have you, we have you. You're our sheep. Sheep hear our voice, so forth. The Jews, what do they, do you remember what they do after that? when they hear this? Remember their reaction? They try to kill him because they knew that what those words meant was that he's claiming to be one with God, to be divine, right, to be God. So their reaction was to kill him. So it does not make sense to come to that passage and say, no, what the words really mean is something other than that. That does not make sense then. That passage does not make sense. And that unravels all the other problems then in interpreting scripture if you play around with this. So in the same way here, we have Pharisees who are interpreting this to be about them, and clearly it is. If you guys have questions, just stop me. Okay, raise your hand and I can slow down or, or speed up, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. Oh, and one... Uh, Point two, at the very end, so the last session, which will be the third, I think it's the third week in, or third or fourth week in October, the seventh session, we're going to do just a summary and then a Q&A. So if you have questions that you want to think through and kind of chew on and don't want to say them now, then just write them down somewhere and think about them and then bring them to that, that last session. Or bring them now. It's your choice. All right. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, this is Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Come, Israel. Come to the marriage. Your savior is here. Your king is here. Come, be part of God's family. Come to the marriage. Be Christ's bride. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. I think that's a foreshadowing then of 80, 70 that, that will come to them. So this is, this is one of the things too we got to keep straight. There are some foreshadowings that happen in scripture, but let's not get that to derail us that all of a sudden it all is for there or, or not. And I think if we keep the context in, in hand, it's fairly simple for the most part when that's happening and when it's, when it's not, not happening. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. 
Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Okay, now look notice the response, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, again, right, do not respond well to this. And notice that Jesus, his uh, chastisement of them. But woe unto you, this is that famous passage in Matthew 23. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer, that means uh, you don't let them in, ye them that are entering to go in. How can you shut up the kingdom of heaven if it's not here? Okay, so it doesn't make sense then, my premillennialist brothers, to say that God therefore took the kingdom away and he's just holding it until Jesus comes back in the second coming and then just set up his, his millennium. Okay, the kingdom is still here. And now the Israelites are trying to prevent people from entering into it. But this doesn't make sense if it's gone. How could they prevent them from entering into a kingdom that is not here? All right, so did Christ's kingdom arrive at his first coming? Yes, it arrived at his first coming. And, and there are many other passages you could use to support this. It's fairly straightforward. And even premillennials have a really hard time dancing around this issue, which is why their only response that I could find when I was deeply into this position was, oh, therefore it was gone. See, it was presented and now it's gone. But that does not make sense given what we're reading. There are numerous passages to, to, to refute that. All right, so I think reasonable answer, very strong answer is yes, the kingdom did arrive at his first coming. All right, now will the kingdom survive Christ's death? Let's see. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So we're talking this last supper now, we're going through communion. I love this argument. Connection, the connection to communion should just be extra sweet for us in uh, the CRUC. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice, I will not drink the fruit of this vine until there's a day, though, that I will drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. All right, so then the question becomes, well, when is that? Right, so <clears throat> he's going to drink again, have communion again with his bride in the kingdom, in a day in the future in the kingdom. When is that? Premillennials would say, well, hey, the kingdom was taken away, so this will happen when he comes back and he sets up his physical kingdom, and, and they have all sorts of other beliefs they have about the millennium uh, with the physical temple and, and that stuff. I don't have to get into all, all, of, all of those things. But is it, is it then, or is it after his resurrection? Fairly quickly after his resurrection. I think it's the latter. But notice they'll say, see, the kingdom hasn't come. See, he said the kingdom was here, but now he's going to drink it anew in the kingdom in the future, so therefore it must have been pulled away. That's not a bad question to ask. It's a reasonable question to ask, but I think we can, we can answer it fairly uh, forcefully and directly. How would you respond to that? The Bible seems to be talking about the kingdom's here, 
but then all of a sudden we're going we're gonna to drink you know, communion in the future with Jesus in the kingdom anew, so therefore it must, maybe, I guess it's not here. It's going to come again. Quinn. Yeah, good. Yes, you get. We're gonna we're gonna reset the Bonson points here. I, I realized last week I was a little, I was a little too generous in the like. At one point is a big deal when I was teaching, so if you got a Van Til point or a Bonson point, which by the way these things matter. And my my son Henry asked me, what do you get with a Bonson point? Like if you get ten of them, what do you get? I said you get Bonson points. There's there's no like exchange that's <laughs> going on here. Like that's what it is. Like this is, and so the, the heart of it though is. Um, I want to clarify this because I'm going to start giving out points going forward. Uh, the point of this is that you've done something worthy of, of thinking. Like you've reasoned to a level that is good. I would say good in God's eyes. And you should keep wanting those things. And that's a mark or a, or a token that you've done that. So the, you wouldn't give it up, right? You wouldn't sell it for something, something else. Heaven forbid you, you, would, you would do such a thing. But if you get one, that's a big deal. If you get two for an answer, it's like out of this world. So I gave five last week because I'm a softie at heart. Now Arnie's got six and I can't take him back, but just don't tell him like a little too generous on that. Okay. So we got to reset him now. So one Bonson point, Quinn. Oh, that was good. So the point though is uh, the already not yet. The kingdom is developing. Okay. So there's the kingdom has come, but it's not fully developed. Okay. So there are, are going to be this dramatic moments where the kingdom is morphing and changing and growing. And clearly these moments are, obviously the resurrection is a key moment in, in the development of the kingdom. Another one would be the ascension, as would Pentecost. And then obviously 80, 70 is kind of, I would say more of the culmination of all these other ones. 80, 70 really then kicks off what I'll argue uh, is the millennium will we'll kick off this, this growth of the kingdom. So yeah, I think that's a, so notice what we're doing here. When people bring us objections like this in the text and we're exegeting these things together, we're trying to look at what is the explanation that still upholds everything else we've looked at that's pretty reasonable from that we put together for scriptures, because we can't undo that. And so if we can just answer this in a way that's reasonable, then we can uphold all the other scriptures we were using if, if you were to go with what they said, you'd have to go back and reinterpret all of these verses, which is not, I don't think is a, it's, it's not going to work. All right, so a much more reasonable explanation is the kingdom is developing, and that's what we'll see as we go on. Again, this seems basic, but people get thrown off by this a lot. It's like, oh, this seems to conflict. It happens with Calvinism all the time. Second Peter 3, 9, okay, when, when Jesus says, well, I'm not going to quote it from memory now, but if you look up second, like you have five verses that, that uh, Arminians will use to undermine Calvinism, to undermine Tulip. And it's the same kind of uh, hermeneutical principle, though. They take, they take the unclear, which are few in number, and then they say, well, that must be how I'm interpreting it. And then, therefore, they undo entire passages like John 6 and Romans 9, which are clearly a long passage on a specific topic of Calvinism. We're not supposed to reason that. That's not how we exegete, exegete scripture. Okay, 
So let's continue. So now we go to Luke 24, 23. Now this is after the, the resurrection. So he says, I will not drink of the vine until it's that day new in, your, in my, my father's kingdom. All right, let's see now what happens. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went into the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village. This is amazing to me. They still didn't know it was Jesus. Whether they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. This is clearly the fullfillment of what happened at the Last, Sup last Supper. Okay, he's sitting there saying, I will, not, I will not eat, again, of this until it's new with you in my Father's kingdom. The moment that actually opens their eyes is having communion with him. That's the most reasonable explanation of this. There's all this gymnastics you'd have to do to try to get this to work, this, which is just unnatural to, to, to the text. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. But notice, though, in, in Luke 24, 30, it says, And it came to pass that he sat at meat with them. He took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. But Matthew 26 says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine. So just, let me go back and just make sure you're following this. So I said that he said, I will not eat with you, right, until it knew my father's kingdom. But in this passage, he, uh, sorry, I will not drink the vine, he said, right? But then in this passage, he broke bread. So someone could say, come along and say, well, see, there was no wine mentioned. And I laugh at this, these kinds of objections because it shows you how hard-pressed... So this, is, this is always evidence of someone who really doesn't have a good position in Scripture. Like, they are really straining at the, the meaning of words here to try to get their position to fit. If, I, if Jesus has bread, is there going to be wine? Yes. If he has wine, is there going to be bread? Yes. These things go, go together when, when they're mentioned. All right, so even if I didn't have other verses to bring up to refute this, the most natural understanding of these words and these phrases is that these things go together. If I say that I broke bread in this context, as I broke bread and wine. If I, had, if I drank of the vine with these people, I also broke bread with these people. They go, to, they go together. And I did this purposely to try to throw you off. I quoted from Matthew, and then I went to Luke because they both emphasize different things. Matthew talks about the vine, and Luke talks about the bread. So obviously taken together, they're clearly the same event, and they're referring to the same thing. But one emphasizes the wine, one emphasizes the bread. They did that so that you would 
one, make sure you go to all of scripture, right, when we're interpreting scripture. But then two, if something comes that's unnatural to you, unnatural in the sense that, uh, like the oneness Pentecostal reinterpreting Jesus' baptism, when all three persons of the Trinity are there interacting with each other, when he, when he gives you an unnatural interpretation, remember, when that happens, go to scripture. When someone says something to you like, oh yeah, homosexuality like, was a, was, it was just a specific type of homosexuality that was condemned in the scriptures. That's odd. That seems different than everything I've read before. Go to the scriptures. Okay, go, go there, and you'll see that that's completely false. There's no way to interpret scripture in which that is true. And as some very influential interpreter of scripture in our circles leads you through John 3 with Nicodemus and says that Nicodemus actually was, was reasoning well in this passage. And at the end of it, he was, really, he was cooking with gasoline, and, and that, now he's got it, and he's going to go off into good things. And that sounds contrary to what you've read with Nicodemus in John 3. What should you do? Go to the scriptures. Anytime someone says something to you, even, whoever it is, doesn't matter who it is, go to the scriptures. If it, especially if it's counter to what you've expected from what, what you've read. Go to the scriptures. And if you went to the scriptures in this passage, you would see that in Luke, he says, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, 16. I will not eat. Okay, well then he did eat. Right, so clearly these things are, are brought together. Questions on this? Are you guys following? Typically you have questions and now it's like you're, maybe it's just obvious so there's no, there's no pushback. But yeah, Pastor. Yeah. Where, where are you placing the binding of the strongman? So, <clears throat> I think I think the binding started in um, the the forty days in the in the wilderness. Yeah. Oh, with, uh, yeah. All right. Um, where, where is it accomplished then? Yeah. The so. <laughs> okay. Let me just clarify. I'm going to give my opinion on this, but if I'm wrong, it really doesn't affect what I'm presenting. Just want to make that clear. Okay, so if, if what I say is wrong, that's fine. Like, I want to be corrected, and these are differences within the position. So my answer could be wrong, and the position is not affected by it. But I think it happens over time. Uh, when it, so let me ask you a question, and then we'll get to uh, my answer. When was, when was Satan's head crushed? Okay, but Scripture also talks about the church crushing his head. So, so, so here's the point, is I think it's an unraveling over time where, the, where this happened, and I think the binding ultimately happens in AD 70. And I'll give you my reason for that. Actually, you're anticipating where I'm going, so this, this is perfect. Uh, but I could be wrong about that. I, could, I, I think I'm right, though, that I'm fairly confident that the binding happens over time, right? So when Jesus is cast out of heaven like, like lightning, Right, when he's cast out of heaven, that clearly is a, is a seminal moment in this whole process of Jesus fighting with, with Satan. But he's still not bound yet. Right? He's still not bound. He's still wreaking havoc. But no longer can he go before the throne of God 
and make accusations to us, or to, to, to the Father against us. He can no longer do that. So his authority is being stripped on earth one by one. And the casting out devils is a great example of that. You no longer have dominion over this. I am taking this back. And this is why uh, Jesus critiques his disciples when there was that certain demon that they couldn't cast out. I forget that passage. But that was because of their lack of faith. It wasn't because of their lack of access to the power needed to cast out uh, that, that demon. Or maybe it was a collection, collection of demons. I, I also like the other passage where <laughs> I, I wish I had this down. Pastor, maybe you can bring it up. But the, where they go, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? Right? And then they run off scared, I think, after that. Right? It's like Paul's faith was great enough where they didn't mess with Paul. Like they knew that they couldn't mess with Paul. So we know Jesus and we know Paul. We respect them. We can't mess with them. But who are you guys? And so the, the point being is that it was, it was, our, it was a, something wrong in us right, that was hindering us taking back this world. It was not in the power of the kingdom or the power of the gospel or access to, to it. Jeremiah. So what, when was that? Uh, during, the, during his time in the grave, that he would have descended, led captivity captive, and gave gifts to them. That that would seem like the most, I mean, because that wouldn't be something like yeah. Yeah, I, now I'm not sure that passage though only relates to his time in the three days between his death and resurrection. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to think, I'd have to, I'm not familiar with that passage as well as prob probably you are. So I, I, before I would concede that point, I'd have to think through that passage. But one of the things that we have to keep straight is Revelation 20, Jesus, or Satan is clearly bound during the millennium, at the start of the millennium. Right, that is, that is, there's a chain, he is chained, the millennium starts, and then at the end of the millennium, he's loosened. He, he is let loose for a final war, which everyone agrees with, by the way. Well, I don't know, all millennials, I, I don't know, they, they must, I don't know what they do here. But, but pre-millennials and post-millennials agree on this point. There will be a final battle, and, G, and Jesus will destroy them. And then we have the, the final judgment at the end of, Revelation 20. So that the binding clearly happens before the millennium starts. It's at the start of the, the millennium. The problem, though, is that Revelation, or, uh, Revelation 17 and 18, by most interpretations, would be AD 70, which is years after the resurrection, decades after the resurrection. So I'm, I, I would say that you'd be hard-pressed to say that the binding of Revelation 20, which is what you have to be referring to. That's what, we're, that's what we're all referring to when we say the binding of Satan, which I'm saying happened over time, is the description of Revelation 20. That is the binding we're all referring to. So if that's the binding we're all referring to, then I don't see how it could be decades before uh, the events of Revelation 17 and 18. I think it's a very unnatural way to read Revelation 17 through 20. Actually, 17 through 22. 
It all happens fairly in order. It seems you know, that way it would happen. And Revelation 19, then obviously the day of Pentecost, gospel going out you know, to conquer the nations, which again happens before the binding of Satan. So that, that would be my pushback, I guess, to that interpretation. But I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on the, on the actual date of the, of the binding. Good question. Sure. I wouldn't quibble over this point. Like, I think it's reasonable to think he did eat with them. Okay. Um, he's preparing fish, right? And then Peter jumps out of the boat. <laughs> I love Peter's reaction. Like, wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you just, even though they probably got there quicker by boat. Or, you know, or, but uh, he's, he, he's preparing food. He's breaking bread with them. I think it's natural to think that he ate with them. Now, if you said he didn't, or if, if it came out that he didn't, uh, that's still communion, though, right? So either way, it's, it's still communion. And I, I would go back to the already not yet. Like, is there a stronger sense in which we have communion post-ascension than what they had pre-ascension? Yes, of course. I would completely agree with that. But the fact that their eyes are open like this, and, the, and it's such a strong correlation. Like, he says, I will not drink of the vine, and then he then emphasizes the vine in Matthew. Or, um, yeah, Matthew's the vine. Luke says bread, I will not eat, and then he emphasizes the bread. Uh, and so it just, the, the, it's such a strong correlation that I would, that's how I would, I would land on it. Yes? Yeah. With them. And then, but then you can, you can get into the thing of, well, when we break bread, you know, is God eating of that bread? Well, I don't, I've not thought about this, okay? Like, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on, on liturgy at all, but I think we would say no. We'd say, right, Pastor? Present, but he's not consuming the bread in the way Jesus would have, right, pre, pre-ascension. Um, but again, I don't, I don't think this distinction matters too much in the sense that, yes, I think he physically partook pre-ascension, post-ascension, I don't think he physically partakes. Interestingly enough, when I was in St. John's and they used to do this uh, Theo 180 class, which is really a class to just destroy any possibility of faith in someone when they started St. John's. This is in Collegeville up by St. Cloud. And one of the arguments that they gave that clearly the the Mount Sinai account of getting the Ten Commandments and this whole account is not real. It's because it says that, Jesus, that God had a meal with them. Uh, I don't know if it was on the mountain, but it was like next to the mountain. But he, they, I, I forget what passage it was or what chapter, but they went and then had a meal with God, right? And they say, well, see, God, God wouldn't eat. This is not clearly a real meal. This is all allegory. And then they would do whatever they wanted with, with the text. Just because he could, God can't eat because he's not physical. So therefore, it didn't happen. So I want to guard against that kind of reasoning, which obviously isn't, isn't good. So okay, so when exactly did the kingdom come? So yes, go ahead. Yeah. Genesis, Abraham makes a meal for the three 
Yeah. Yes. Very good. Amen. Thank you. Yes. So he did, he did eat in one passage. Likely he ate in, in these other examples. So someone said, well, when exactly did the kingdom come? I would say, I'm not sure. I know it's, very quickly this reason you can get to that Wittgensteinian line of when have you actually entered a room or when has a child been said to start reading? Like when has he actually start, started reading? Which you can't know exactly when these things happen. So I'm not sure if we'd be getting into that, but I would say that we know definitively it happened when he's casting out demons, because he said it happened when he's casting out demons. Now, was there a point, though, where it started prior to that? I'm not confident on that, because he doesn't speak as emphatically as he does there. But I would, I would think it's reasonable, or at least plausible, to say that when he declared war on Satan and left the desert, the kingdom has now started. This whole process has, has begun. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that that's that room analogy that it's that he's that he's stepping in and it's he's finally in the room by the time you get into Mark. The latter part of chapter one and chapter two where he heals the man lowered down to the roof. Yeah. It's obvious when when it's here. Right. right. It's obvious when you're in the room and it's obvious when you're not. But it's not obvious where the crossover happened. To, to, to your to your point. All right, so then the last thing is, when did the, when did the millennium begin? Here's, here's where I would land on this. This is a soft position, but I, it's, to me, it's the most defensible as I, as I see it right now. The millennium, I think, began after AD 70. At, so, I don't know how long it took, but reasonably shortly after AD 70. If we look at uh, the culmination of events up to AD 70, you have the kingdom coming, and you have all these things unfolding, and then the big dramatic moment is when God destroys his old house, right? Destroys this house of, of idols, destroys this old way of things, and it's the kicking off of the, the new covenant going to the, to the world. Now, notice someone will say, well, but God, is, God is, has ascended. He's reigning before the millennium begins then. But that's not a problem because, well, one, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. He can be reigning before he starts the millennium. And also, we know that he will be reigning when the millennium's over. There's, there's a gap also at the end of this period where the millennium stops and Satan starts wreaking havoc on earth and he's still reigning, letting it happen before he comes back to judge. So there is bookends of this where he's reigning and the millennium has, has not happened or is over. Yeah, Justin. Mm-hmm. Uh, overlap between right. uh, crucifixion and resurrection, you know, 70 AD, so it's again like that. 
Yeah. So I would agree with the transition period, but it seems, it seems, Revelation 20 is very hard to interpret as being happening, starting before Revelation 17, 18, and 19. I just don't see how I can, how that makes sense. So if that's the case, then, and, and, and the Revelation 20's language is fairly clear, like Satan is bound, the millennium is here, and all these things are, you know, are, are happening. The thousand years has begun. So that would be my pushback would be, I, I agree with the transitional period, but I don't, I have a hard time fitting the millennium prior to AD 70. I just, and ma mainly because of Revelation. Yeah, Jeremiah. Yeah. No, I I think it is. So is there a difference between the kingdom and the millennium? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, so, no, so as uh, uh, Elder Evans said last week, that like the year of jubilee, right? It, it's a, it's a time of which is which is part of a bigger you know, t time frame. So I would say that the millennium is a period of time of the kingdom. It has to be because let's say, let's say we, we, let's say we just put off the first half of the, of the kingdom here and we go to after the millennium. The millennium has an ending. The millennium is not the new heavens and the new earth. It comes to an end. And clearly the kingdom though is still here and Jesus is still reigning and, and Satan is not bound anymore and the millennium is over. So we have to make a distinction between the millennium and the kingdom. The millennium is a period of time of the kingdom. That's the best way I can make sense of all of these things, these things together. And that's the point. That's what we're trying to do here, right? This, and then notice, but notice the, the contrast. I'll wrap up here. Notice the contrast between this kind of reasoning and the world is young, young earth creation. If I was walking you through Genesis 1 through 11, and going through the age of the earth, and Adam and Eve are the father of the human race, and the flood was worldwide, and, and there was no death and suffering before the fall, and I went through these things, we would not be having this kind of back and forth interaction. It would be, I read the text, and it's obvious. Like, this is what the word, like, this is what the words mean. Read the text, there's no real, real way around this. Notice how, how we are crossing over here from plain teaching to unplain, at least as far as we understand it today. Our abilities is, it's, maybe it is plain for Christians a thousand years from now, but so far, given our ability where we are, it's, it's unplain to us. But it's not, it's not obscure, like, it's not like we're in the Nephilim conversation of Genesis 6. So Pastor and I talked about this a couple of times in the past, about what, who are the Nephilim of Genesis 6. We're not in that conversation. Okay, we are much closer to the, the line where plainness happens, where you cross over to plainness, the Wittgensteinian line that we cross over. We're much closer to that line than the Nephilim conversation. Okay, but we're not over it, though. That's why I just want to have caveats here that I could be wrong on some of these things and willing to be instructed that way. All right. So will this kingdom survive Christ's death? Yes. Yes, it will. I think fairly clearly, it did survive his death.
Then the question becomes, well, what's it going to do? What's, what's the kingdom going to do? Is it going to grow? And that's what we'll talk about next time. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for scripture. What a blessing it is to have scripture. You did not leave us in darkness. You gave us your word, and we get to understand it because your Holy Spirit is with us and guides us. And your Holy Spirit being with us, guiding us in scripture, is better than if Jesus were next to us guiding us, which is hard for us to understand. And, but, you, but Jesus said so. It would be better that he would leave and the Holy Spirit would come. Help us never to take that lightly, to never take lightly Christians coming together where two or three are gathered. You are there in your spirit guiding us. And I pray that we would do it faithfully, humbly, and joyfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.